0: Thank you for tuning in to the Dust Sign Podcast. My name is Dustin Mater, and I'm a visual artist. I've always been inspired by the creative muse and others and myself. In tonight's episode, we'll be speaking with the culinary artist, Brett Reed. Thank you for coming on tonight, Brett. Well, let's just start right off the bat. Who are you and what do you do?
1: So, uh, my name is Britt Reed and uh, I am Choctaw. Um, I grew up initially in Dallas and uh, and now I live up in Toilet, Washington, which is a uh, Coast Salish territory. Um, I live on uh, yeah, the reservation. Um, a little bit of what I do I do quite a bit of things. Um, Right now, I work for the Toledo Health Clinic for the diabetes program, and I provide uh, culinary services there, um, primarily to uh, be able to both uh, teach healthy recipes to the community,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then also to be able to uh, to create programming there that will actually, uh, well, at least, is my hope, to be able to connect people not only to healthy foods but uh, to traditional foods.
0: That's awesome.
1: Um, I'm also a member of the I Collective, which is of Native and Indigenous chefs um, throughout the Americas who are uh, focused on doing traditional foods and, then, uh, and also food keepers, knowledge keepers, artists. Uh, and we're all involved with the Native American food revitalization movement. And so we've done things like pop-ups, like a pop-up series in New York to address um, different methodolo- or methodologies around Thanksgiving.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, we're about to do a food symposium down in the Southwest this week and hopefully soon in Seattle, in June, we'll be doing um, a community dinner, a pop-up there to be able to uh, highlight Cosselish food.
0: That is awesome.
1: I'm b-work artist and uh, a newly minted feather cape artist, I guess.
0: Really? That. Wow. That yeah. is, That's awesome. Uh, there's There's not a whole lot of... Uh, feather cape artists out there and i i was hoping that you were going to mention your bead work as well i i really like your stuff and what you've made and what you've shared on instagram
1: yeah thank you yeah it's a kind of an interesting thing is uh living so far away from oklahoma or even mississippi where our tribes at? um there's a high population of choctaw people here and i'm not sure if it's just the uh being so far away from Oklahoma that people out here are more interested in uh, pre-colonial regalia, especially women, women um, in particular. So uh, there was a high interest in trying to figure
2: out how these old feather capes were done. Yeah. And so, uh,
1: ironically enough, uh, we were like the first cohort of people. We brought out an elder from Oklahoma. We still have the knowledge to do that, and uh, and she taught us up here. And she said we're like one of the first cohorts of, of Choctaws to be able to learn how to do that. So... And
0: ironic, I guess. That's so cool. I I know I know for me, um uh I had heard stories growing up from my grandmother Caroline um sharing, you know, planting seeds in my head of old stories, but I never having like a visual context for them. And when I moved away to Los Angeles, I found images of it and it started to light a fire in my mind and was like such a, an aha moment of getting it. But it was funny that I found it out in Los Angeles and not in Oklahoma. Um, Yeah. So I totally get that, you know, being away sometimes. uh, It just, that longing for home or community, you know, the culture, you know, it is, uh, um, it can draw people together. And, you know, that's definitely one of the beauties of our peoples.
1: Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's been really great. There's another Choctaw talk talk up here, uh, Sam Stitt who you said you talked to you before and uh yeah me and him for years now have kind of geeked out on old Choctaw regalia and like looking up like you know as old as we can find like photographs and illustrations and text to try and figure out you know like what that stuff was like you know beyond this uh you know french uh dress with you know some diamonds on it yeah See, like, beyond that
0: have you ever seen that um that alligator foot tobacco pouch that was attributed to Chickasaw. I mean to Choctaw. I believe so, yeah. That's so cool. At uh I believe Edinburgh, Scotland, they have like a they thought was like a cap, like a hood, um, that was attributed to the Chada. But it was actually uh my, my friend Margaret Wheeler had made it there and uh she said it wasn't like a like a hood, like of cloth. It was a scalp that <laughs> oh really yeah oh, wow. um and i i've actually seen some really good um before we were before we started recording tonight we were talking about you know the traditional tattooing and i have actually seen more direct images uh, that were uh that were choctaw uh than uh some of the other tribes you know very specific um, uh, Choctaw, and they had some examples. Uh, some of the last uh, traditional uh, tattoos were, or uh, of the old era that passed away around like 1910, uh, were women, and they had them tattooed on their palms and on their hands. I think I'm gonna have to hit you up with those photos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, because yeah, we found some um, that, like, because, uh, you
1: know, unfortunately uh, getting engaged with the French after a time, they didn't really care about women too much and recording what we did. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so far the ones that I've seen is like, uh, kind of what, uh, Oklahoma, six town, mm-hmm. like their, what their women had was the, uh, tattoos, like kind of going in a triangle manner, like to their cheeks, like from the corner of their, their lips to the, you know, end of their cheeks or whatever. Oh yeah. Um, and then also like how, uh, they describe it as being kind of like a swirling look that went on a uh, Chauca women's chest, even around like their breasts. Yeah, there was a spot that actually says,
0: you know, like a tender area. Well, uh, I believe but they there,
1: that. that's really what I've seen so far. So it would be great to see more.
0: Yeah, there's actually some illustrations by uh, Romans, uh, and they were of Chata women. And this, uh, two, there was just two women that I saw, and one of them almost looked like a zebra and the way that they just had the density of pattern um, all over her body. It was really impressive. Um, but yeah, I'll, okay. de- I'll definitely send your stuff, uh, some stuff your way. Another good example is the, the effigies of old woman who never dies. There is some yeah. uh, prime examples of like the facial and neck tattoos uh, that she had. That's awesome. Yeah, I'd love to see that.
1: Um,
0: what inspires you?
1: like going back, is that uh, you know, I think a lot of, uh, you know, Native people have a lot of different kinds of lived experiences, and my personal lived experience is that I was adopted out as a baby, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I was really lucky to be able to grow up in a household that was very loving and supportive, but my parents were white, you know, and so, um, you know, it's not their fault that they couldn't, you know, expose me to, like, Native culture or anything, because that's not what they grew up with. Sure. So whenever I became of age, um, after quietly taking in like all these representations of natives, that wasn't you know pretty legit or anything. Um,
2: yeah.
1: I was uh, able to join up kind of like a broader native community, I would say, before being able to connect with the Choctaw community, both locally here in Washington and then back home in Oklahoma. Really. But uh, uh, yeah, but I think that uh, that experience for me, like, really. Uh, kind of led me to like you know i feel like the root of a lot of the things that i do is like always trying to find the root of it whether that's like in like choctaw regalia and beadwork
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, or whether that's you know like knowing more about stickball even though i've attempted to play and i will tell
0: you i'm terrible <laughs> <laughs> well the, the... Uh, I also about all the, the folks that play up in here like we're, we're kind of bad too but we do have a fun time trying to figure it out uh we're trying to work through our
2: Pacific Northwestness of the Seattle chill and <laughs> more <aggressive. laughs> But yeah, and I think that extends out to, you know, even cooking too. Um, yeah.
1: I think that, uh, so a lot of the the old stuff, trying to look at that really inspires me um, and just like my lived experience and trying to make sure too that um, you know what I'm doing, I'm getting it right as much as I can anyway since yeah. I grew up in a, a position of not being able to access You know things that were legitimate because I wasn't really connected to my own people, or even Native people in general. Um,
2: Yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, I begin. I think it all begins like asking questions, um, and not necessarily always being settled with the uh, the narrative that even your tribal nation gives you.
2: For example,
1: like thinking about regalia. You know, like when they talk about traditional regalia, pretty much like what they just tell us is that you know our shirts and our dresses. Um, the diamonds on them represent the diamondback rattlesnake. And basically, like that, we wear it to honor them and their ability to um, protect our crops back when uh, a lot of our women were actually out there traditionally, like growing corn and squash and sunflowers and, and all that stuff. Um, and basically, I mean, like, uh, you know, really ensuring that our people could survive, especially since, you know, like that's what we had, you know, if the crop fails. We can try and hunt some, you know, gather some, but you know that was our mainstay right there. So yeah. Uh, but you know, like that—that that dress, it was something that was popular in Brittany, France, I believe. Uh, where we were trading with them, and like we're uh, we're allies. But uh, I mean, that's really not that far back.
0: No, uh, that would be like settling. Um... If, you know, you you um, had some regalia from, like, the 80s, the 1980s, not the yeah. 1880s, and, you know, people are like, saying, well, that's what it means to be, you know, Chad or our Southeastern. Um, yeah. It, it's I... just, it was just a brief moment, and not, like, uh, hearkening back to antiquity, or even a hundred years prior. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And it's not even, like, a true representation of what that dress and that shirt looked like, even the last... Going to the early 1900s. Um, I mean, it wasn't always solid. There was definitely, uh, you know, people were wearing print, like uh, fabric with prints on it. And then, you know, it wasn't always a diamond, or the diamond wasn't as big as they're getting it these days. Um, it was definitely a lot smaller, um, or it was just kind of like a zigzag kind of situation. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, I think starting to ask questions like, you know, is that really correct? Um, and not just being satisfied with, like, the quick kind of answer they give you. Um, I think it's kind of where I started digging back and kind of being like, okay, so, like, what was, what came before that? And then with the food, um, you know, we were a rich agricultural society, but we didn't we didn't just rely on our crops alone. Um, you know, there were people out hunting all the time, or, you know, often enough, and then there was also people gathering, because, so like, what are those foods that they're gathering? Yeah. It's like corn is definitely a main staple of ours. Um, I kind of like to joke when I, was in, I was, ah, when I was in culinary school, you know, they talk about like Japanese cooking, how like uh, rice is the foundation of that. And for me, I think corn definitely has a foundation of that. Um, <laughs> my uh, my friend Chris Pearson the other week, he's Choctaw as well, and the doctor just told him that he can't have any more corn. And he like dead looked him in the eye and was like, but I'm Choctaw. Huh?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the doctor just looked at him like, okay, we well, can't have corn anymore. But, uh, that was, that was kind
2: of funny. That is. But, uh, but, you know, like, when I look at the recipes that the tribe gives out, the Choctaw
1: Nation gives out, there's essentially about five in there that they give out. You know, like, yeah. people call it, like,
2: yeah. um, there's uh, wild onions and eggs. There's
1: banaha bread, which I know. Some people back in Oklahoma say I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> so,
2: my the, apologies. The banaha,
0: um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... And then a
1: couple other recipes there, but that's kind of the extent. But you know, it's like we lived a long time, and it wasn't just like five dishes alone.
2: There's no way we oh, could it.
0: Oh lord, them. no. So, uh, yeah, you
2: know, there's a lot more there, and it's like, okay, so like,
0: what else is there? You know, a good example think, to to yeah. to look at is um, in those first contact drawings. Uh, look at the look at the what they're preparing. 're smoking they're smoking fish, they're smoking eel, they're smoking turtle, uh, they're smoking turkey and the different animal proteins, um, dried fish. And, um, and some of them, you know that the, the term barbecue comes from the Spaniards calling it barboca uh, of what we were doing that seasoning. So essentially barbecue, the seasonings that, that pretty much originate were actually Mississippian tribal uh, foods um that uh, uh was just part of the cooking tradition that smoking the meats with the, with the, with the different herbs and also uh you know the crawfish and the crabs and mussels uh you know we were waterways people and that's really something that we can't forget yes we did a lot of venison but you know c- seafood and aquatic life was a major staple in our in our diet as well
1: I so thought it was interesting, too, because, you know, like, I went through culinary school recently, and uh, they'll talk about Creole and Cajun food uh, more specifically. And, you know, like they always give credit to, uh, like, the African-American uh, community, which definitely has its dues there in the, the French. But Southeastern tribes had a big influence there, as well as throughout all the Southeast, um, the cooking style there.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: And uh, I don't think that we personally get the credit that we deserve for the contribution in Southern cooking and um, Cajun and Creole cooking that we should get. We definitely had added, like, sassafras to that that food culture there, but there's a lot of other things as well that we added in there that, uh, you know, wouldn't be there without our influence.
0: Absolutely. You know that they had a... I was reading a passing um, comment in one of the journals, and they were talking about how that uh, on the trails on the Indian trails, they would have like certain root uh, root herbs and medicines that they would specifically plant along these trails. And one of them was a type of um, ginger that they would uh, help with digestion. And uh, with, uh, you know, their day to day uh, dietary needs that they would just, they would have it along the places that they regularly went um, around and through.
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's the, those are the things that interest me also, because um, you know, like part of my work is that um, it initially started out whenever I went to uh, to Seattle, uh-huh. um, or moved from Chicago to to uh, Washington after being in art school over there at Columbia College Chicago, and uh, we started like I was in a, a program called the reservation-based community determined program, and essentially that was a program that had asked tribal leaders throughout. Um, the Western Washington area like what is it that you need to like leaders to know um, to be good leaders to our community in the future um, and I also went to um, I got my master's in public administration with the Constitution tribal governance also from Evergreen wow. but it was allowed me in those two programs to be able to start looking at food and how that also affects health and what's the history um, of food in tribal communities and um, you know that brings up like how being forcibly removed from our food has
2: yeah.
1: um, led to a whole host of, um, like, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, um, things like that, In um, those boxes, the the commodity certainly didn't help.
0: Um, Absolutely.
1: But, uh, you know, like, for me, like, thinking about um, addressing those the things that we have in our community, um, I know it's kind of controversial, but... Uh, I have to say that I'm a little against fry bread. <laughs> I know there's probably going people that gasp as they hear that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like looking at the history, to me, that's like the most delicious prison food you can ever have.
2: Oh, sure. Uh,
1: and, uh, you know, when people ask, like I say, like, definitely, like, you know, keep eating it, but, you know, do it in far smaller quantities. Um, and then maybe look towards, like, you know, ask, like, what our traditional foods are um, and what foods we have available to us. But, uh, you know, like, we don't, I feel like a lot of people, when they think about different foods, they don't necessarily ask, like, okay, like, what, in what way is this food also medicine to me? Yeah. Like, sure, it's healthy, you know, like, eating cilantro or whatever, which is not indigenous, but just as an example. Um,
2: yeah.
1: Sure, you know, like, that's a green, and so it could be healthy, but, you know, you dig a little bit deeper, and you find out that that's actually something that can remove a lot of um, toxins in your blood. Yeah. Um, you know, like our traditional foods, they definitely have elements like that also. It's not just eating a nettle, but that nettle is also, um, you know, addressing the inflammation or um, the arthritis that you might be experiencing um, and also washing out the toxins that are in your body, especially if you're, uh, you're eating it fresh, yeah. as you know, like, it's in spring. Um, so, I know to me, like, that's another reason
0: for me that's why the traditional foods are really important. Absolutely, I think that's it. It is. It's so important, and and that's and that's what I love about your your page and your passion of what you do. And you are such an omni omni talented uh, person that I I just I w- I'm really glad that you agreed to come on. Uh, it, it means a lot. Um, I, I guess moving on to the next question, um, what are you doing to be a good ancestor? And I know that you know some of the answers that you've given so far are clear indications of. Uh, the hallmarks of being a good ancestor, but in in your mind, what do you feel that you're doing?
1: Um, I mean, I think for myself, just having been an adoptee, um, knowing what that experience is like, and then also knowing how widespread that issue um, is and how many adoptees are out there. Um, I guess for those that don't know, like back in the 50s the 70s, the government said that their answer to boarding schools was the transition into adopting out and fostering out Native kids into white homes. And then that, that was going to save them money. Um, so before and after, including now, there's still one out of every four Native children. In some places, one out of every three, or all three, uh, sorry, yeah, every three Native children are taken from our communities um, and deposited outside, which I think is a direct attack um, on our people that really needs to be addressed. Um, even still, unfortunately, but um, knowing how much the the false representations out there
2: mm-hmm. affected
1: me, um, and also knowing like how difficult it is, and how much of it lays on the adoptee to figure out how to get back home to your community, to your family if they even accept you back, um, and, or just like a general like you know like urban native community um, for me. Like, any sort of work that I can do, especially now that I'm, like, kind of falling into being put in, like, in a, being, like, published and put in a spotlight, like, any work that I can do to create a positive representation, I think, is really important for me on that level. Um, and uh, I'm really inspired also, like, talk, thinking about, like, what it means to be a good ancestor. Um, I'm really inspired by the work of Karina Walters, who is uh, she's a Choctaw woman, who is also the um, founder of the Indigenous Wellness Institute. At UW, and uh, she does a project with our tribe called Yaapali, which is the old Choctaw word that means to uh to walk slowly with reverence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, what this program does is it uh it works with 150 Choctaw women from different communities uh, to uh to address different health issues that are in our our community, both for like that woman to like you know like um, diabetes or something like that, and kind of into like walking like 15 minutes a day or like whatever it is, but also to become a health leader in her community.
2: Yeah,
1: and uh, and a part of that, too, is, like, I'm about to go on it here soon next month, but uh, she's done a lot of work to figure out where the Trail of Tears are, and not just, like, this is the general area of the Trail of Tears, but the actual Trail of Tears are the ancestors' walking camps. Yeah. And she takes um, about 30 of those women at time on that trail, and they walk up about, about the amount of hours or about the amount of miles that they would have walked every day and uh what's inspiring to me is not just that she's doing that but you know the purpose of it is not to get caught up in what she says like the drama of the trauma you know um but to ask ourselves considering what our ancestors have gone through and that they've walked this trail like what is what would have been like what would they have wanted for us in going through that and uh what is our responsibility as descendants um to honor that and so they asked the question three of them um what kind of ancestor would my ancestor want me to be? Yeah. What kind of ancestor do I want to be? And then finally, like, what kind of ancestor do I want uh, my descendants to be?
2: Yeah.
1: And recognizing that when we address uh, different things in our own life, that that heals not only, like, ourselves, but the past generations and the generations to come. Um, So I think that also really challenges me um, when I think about that work um, and how blessed I am to uh, to be able to go on that trail and help them with that work. Try and figure out how I can do that uh, in my daily life. Um, And so, you know, like, I could go and I could work on the line somewhere in a restaurant and work myself up to being, like, a chef um, there and, you know, try and take advantage of all of that. But uh, I think for me, like, where my work lies is in communities. Um, And I've been really thankful, too, that, like, my, my dream job was to be able to work in a tribal community where I could do work with food to address these chronic diseases, and uh, I kind of, hearing from the pushback with other people that wanted to do this kind of work got, I kind of, like, didn't know whether or not I'd be able to to do that, um, but I've also been very blessed to be able to be hired on the diabetes program here at Talila to be able to do that, where I can figure out uh, some long-term ways of how I can address that here in this community. Um, so I think that, you know, doing that is, is definitely, like, one way I'm trying to be a better ancestor, and of course, like also doing beadwork, so I can pass that on to uh, to my descendants, um, and then also trying to learn more about what the some of the old ways are. Yeah. In terms of like crafting and stuff, and uh, so I can hopefully inspire other people to want to take that up. And uh, and I think for me, like you know, like I've I've connected back, and I try to learn as much as I can, but I also recognize that I need to be able to uh, to go back to Oklahoma and also be, like, with my community that's there and uh, to learn from them. Um, I've been trying to work with Ian Thompson, or I have been working with Ian Thompson, who's done a lot of work also, to to figure out what our old uh, food ways were and then tr- trying to, like, encourage people to bring that back. But it would be really great to be able to go back and actually be there. Although there's different plants that are that we traditionally had that we gathered that are here in Washington, like nettle and and all that, um, wild onions,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, it's definitely better to go back to, to Oklahoma or Mississippi where they're all like right there and have yeah. to be there in season really and learn from them.
0: Um, well really now is the season. They're already kind of popping up everywhere. Just stick- yeah, yeah, Yeah.
1: And it's like different food that comes up at different seasons too. And,
2: yeah.
1: uh, I know for me, it's been really interesting to try and watch like, for example, like nettles, um, I keep going back to that because I just gathered a whole bunch of it like a week or so ago.
0: Really? That's cool. (laughs) Now, do you you make tea tea with it? What was that? Do you make tea with it or do you cook with it or is it a combination?
1: Yeah, kind of a combination. Um, What I did, well, one was trying to like, you know, alongside just gathering it, you have to do the whole process of, um, you know, taking apart the leaves and the stems and the roots and then for me to be able to use it for the rest of the year like I needed to blanch it. And so I tried to make sure to wash all the leaves off and the stems the roots off real good several times before blanching it. So that way I could also use the uh the water from the pot and then also uh, like the ice water as a byproduct in tea. Which has been really interesting to find out too, like uh, you know, like the the water from blanching it will taste a lot different than say if you dried the, the leaves and then utilized that as a tea. Like I found that uh the dried leaves taste a lot more like hay, I guess. Really? Yeah. I'm saying like the blanching water, which like, I feel like it was a lot like more smoother. Um, even though it was like super, super condensed, super dark. <laughs>
0: really? Compared
1: to the, the dried leaf, uh, nettle tea. Yeah.
0: What is, what is the, the flavor, um, comparative to, of, of like nettle tea? I
1: don't know. I feel like it kind of has its own flavor. Um, I know a lot of people, like, when they start to try and incorporate that into their diets. uh, you know, it's, like, one thing to know what it is and see it out there, but it's a whole other other thing to be able to start working with it and actually eating it. Yeah. Uh, When I see them using it, I see uh, usually people are using it as kind of a, like, a spinach substitute. Hmm. And there's a lot of different ways. I think, like, the Pacific Northwest is kind of interesting. uh, I have a lot of different feels about it. and the ways that they're utilizing what would be, like, Coast Salish traditional foods and what they're calling this, like, broader, like, mainstream Pacific Northwest cuisine. Yeah. We have things like fiddleheads, which is also a, a official food of ours down there in the southeast. Um, we have a lot of fiddlehead, a, um, a lot of nettle, a lot of other things, uh, traditional watercress. Um, and they incorporate into things like ravioli or breads or, or just a whole number of different things. Hmm.
0: One time I made, uh, a type of, uh, traditional bread based on, uh, some, uh, wood block, uh, drawings, uh, of first contact. And it was like, a um, I was using like a binding agent. So I, I used an egg. Um, uh, I didn't have any, you know, rendered bear, bear fat. So I used a little bit of like a, uh, like a type of, uh, vegetable oil. And, um, I ground in a pestle some, um, uh, hominy and, uh, I got some wild onions and I chopped them up and I made like these little, um, Johnny cakes. Like they were like unleavened bread and almost like crackers. And uh, they actually weren't bad at all. Um, but it was just trying to get a feel of the taste and being able to, um, Explore uh, that component of the culture. You know, it's so important to, in in my mind, to capture. You know, the food. We live in America, and you would be very hard pressed to actually find a Native American restaurant that actually serves Native food. Now, there's the um, the restaurant chain Takabe, I believe, in in Colorado, and their food is fantastic. And it, it, yeah. it it's so fantastic that it, it bewilders me that there is no other options like the the the, the restaurant at the Smithsonian of the Native American, of the American Indian in Washington D.C. The restaurant there is sublime. They hit every single point in the Americas, um, and as food representing, and it's so good. It's so good from like the. Uh, the North American wild rice that was grown by the tribes in, okay. near the Great Lakes—that stuff is sublime. It's got like the, a nutty quality, and you throw in some um, berries for, to, in, to intensify the taste, and it's just something so special. Um, and I, I'm just—I'm—I'm I'm just stunned that there's nothing really out there. Uh, you know, there's obviously there's always going to be places that have like fry bread. And, and, you know, that's a, that's an okay treat, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I want to know more. I want to see how would it, okay. how would they have used pawpaw? How would they have used, um, the different nuts and the seeds and the, the different, um, you know, we, we liked sweets. We, you know, we're I mean, we didn't have like access to pure sugar all the time, but, you know, what were some of the sweets? You know, I know that there was the possum grapes. And they would make the type of like uh, dumpling with uh, like uh, the cornmeal. But what else was used?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm always surprised uh, continuously as I like try and dig deeper. Um, One thing I was, I'll go on the the sweetest in a second. But, you know, like one thing I was uh, really surprised about, I remember reading about um, how the Cherokees abused the rice that they got out of the swamp. And then I saw, like, kind of that for the Choctawages in that, too, and I was like, what the heck? So I asked Ian Thompson about that, and I was like, yeah, that's wild rice, man. <laughs> um, and I was kind of astonished that, you know, that was a, another food that we also had, you know, down there in the southeast, just that, you know, we don't really talk about it that much, as, yeah. particularly as much as, you know, someone that's, like, Anishinaabe would. Um, but another thing I was really astounded about is, you know, like, come around the fall time, like, late summer, early fall, down the southeast, May Pops come out. I remember looking at this uh, this flower and it was like pretty alien and crazy, but like also beautiful and like super purple. Mm-hmm. i like, what is that? And it's like, oh, yeah, it's the flavor of uh, passion fruit. Freaking passion fruit.
2: <laughs> wow. Yeah,
1: like that was like, you know, like at least in my mind, uh, you know, I would have thought of it as this, like tropical thing that maybe you got out, I don't know, Hawaii or someplace. I don't know. Or like Southeast Asia. Yeah. So that was uh, another traditional food that we would have had during that time, which is really interesting, especially when you think about the fact that it's likely it has vitamin C in it, and we're about to go into a time where we're, like, definitely not about to have any kind of citrus thing around uh, for a good number of months. Yeah. And I know for myself, like, again, like, asking those questions, you know, like, uh, they would talk about that dish, uh, I'm going to butcher it. From a distance, you know, like, I'm always trying to do my best to learn uh, Choctaw, but... Well, a lot of speakers here <laughs> definitely uh, butcher words, but we well, or Wolofsky, um, the grape dumplings. Yeah. But, you know, like in my mind, you know, like I don't see any reason why they would have been restricted to only using grapes on that dish, you know. Um, I would have thought, you know, that it's totally reasonable that they would have used any kind of berry or anything that's sweet. Um,
2: yeah.
0: Especially
1: something with a lot of juice that would create that kind of dish and not just be so rigidly just grape dumplings, you know.
0: Yeah. That's something you wouldn't even really think about. And and then it just digs the deeper question. Well, what other fruits are purely indigenous to here? You know, uh, we, yeah. we, people kind of forget that apples are actually Chinese. They're not, you know, they're not from North America. And, uh, uh, you know, what kind of fruits were there? You know, uh, persimmons, I know, would have been something that would have been used. And...
1: Oh, yeah, we totally use that. And I have to say, too, I had a... The great blessing of being able to use some of our traditional persimmons while I was in New York. Um, on the last day, I made a tonchi labona, and then I made a puree of of uh, persimmon with, uh, with a corn shoot.
2: Nice. And I
1: have to say, like I had, I had to use. I have a had a huge project at the culinary School called the Chef of the Day. So um, we have to do things that are seasonal. So it's kind of a, a Pacific Northwest mainstream um, like food culture up here. Uh-huh. So I was like, all right, I'm in the I'm use persimmons. Um, so there's a learning curve on that. But, uh, man, those those Japanese ones have nothing on our indigenous persimmons at all. Wow. Um, like, uh, I mean, they were definitely good when they were, like, pickled. So if anybody wants a recipe for pickled persimmons. I definitely got it for you. It's delicious.
0: Really? But, uh, really?
1: Yeah, for the use. But I found that our traditional ones are, like, really lovely and floral, and even though they get like really mushy, and you gotta like take all those seeds out of it, and like remove the skin, so it doesn't have that kind of like weird funky off flavor. Yeah, it's totally worth it. Um, so I would definitely say whenever it gets to be, you know, like fall winter time, go on out there, and don't be afraid to go and pick those persimmons off the trees, and try and, you know like save them in any way that you can, so you can have that treat later on in the year.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. See that that's that's why I, I was saying earlier, you should you should just do a podcast just talking about things like that. You know, it, it, it's so wonderful. There's like uh, um, the, you know, we were talking about Vicky Pinner and, and uh, the book that she was a part of the let's eat. And um, you know, it, it, they're so good. It, and and there, it's, I don't know. There's something that's pleasurable and uh, almost spiritual being able to bite into something that you know that that same taste or the equivalency you're eating is something that you you're sharing with your ancestors. That's just, it's almost, uh, um, it's almost spiritual and that kind of that direct connection.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think, uh, you know, kind of going back to the conversation we had earlier about, you know, learning what the root of things are and, um, you know, what was original, but then trying to make something new. Yeah. Um, you know, it really struck me the first time that I tried to make tonchi labana because that was essentially my first try at making any Choctaw uh, food.
0: Now, can you describe um, that? I'm not able to... Sorry, what was that? Can, can, now, can you describe tonchi labana for folks who may not uh, know what that is?
1: Yeah, so if you're Chickasaw, you might be more familiar with the term for shofa, and so that's the same dish. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, it's um, thankfully something that you can make by just going to your local grocery store. Um, but it's essentially like a, you know, a stew of, um, corn, hominy, and then nowadays, especially since, uh, the French killed off all of our deer in our territories, um, there's been pork in it. Yeah. Which before that, it would have been like, you know, those two, those two things, and then like, you know, like water and any kind of game that you could have got, um, and, uh, I guess my dirty little secret is when I make it at home, I won't lie, I use bacon.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah?
1: But then oh, there's, like, some Pokemon's out there that I would probably just scream and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> but who can't love bacon. Definitely not healthy.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but I know, like, just people have used different parts of, uh, of the pig, whether it's the shoulder, I'm using yeah. the spine, but, like, it's more of that, um, you know, essentially help make a stock out of it and give more of that pork flavor into the that dish. But, uh, yeah, that's essentially what it was. But for me, uh, you know, like, thankfully my, my parents had, like, a pretty strong uh, philosophy and execution of cooking nearly every night, I would say, growing up. Um, and then kind of, like, introducing me to cooking by, like, you know, like, letting me do different little tasks here and there as I grew up from a kid to a teenager. And then, you know, I had to figure it out when I went off to college. But uh, I was used to incorporating a whole bunch of different kinds of spice, like definitely garlic. I love me some garlic. Um, And, you know, like pepper and, like, other spices here and there. But so to see that recipe and be, like, salt only, I was like, dude, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I struggled so hard because I was like, oh, dude, I should really throw in some other spices. I'm like, no, like I should should just wait and see what it tastes like and, uh, you know. And I'm thankful that I did because I didn't really realize, like, the depth of flavor that those three ingredients along with some salt, or I guess it's five ingredients with so the water and salt, You i to count that in, but, yeah, just, like, how deep that flavor can be and, like, just how delicious that is.
2: Um,
1: so I think it's, like, I sh- what really, like, stands out to me about that experience is that, um, you know, unfortunately, we no longer have the palates of our ancestors, and, uh, just eating it straight. I mean, like even traditionally, like I don't think there would have been salt in there. Um, I know we have a Choctaw word for hoppy, um, but I'm I'm quite sure that probably came around after you know, like we had contact with the French and the English and all of them, the Spanish. Yeah. Uh, but to eat like that kind of dish just straight without salt, I don't I don't know a lot of people that could probably just do that. Um,
0: yeah, it's pretty. pretty so, that'd be pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let
1: alone, you know, like, some of these other things that we're not as familiar with um, that you'd be gathering out there. Um, I think there's definitely, like, a special, like, spiritual experience about tasting the same flavors that your ancestors did. Yeah. But I know the worst that I've had to do, unfortunately, you know, like, we have to uh, incorporate things that also satisfy um, the flavor palettes that we've inherited through the um, forceful forceful removal from our traditional foods.
0: Absolutely. Um, and so,
1: being able to take those foods and also think about like, okay, like as you taste it, I would definitely encourage if you're trying to cook traditionally or just in general, as you taste your dish, you know, like thinking about, all right, does like this need more salt? Does this need more acid? Like you know, like um, vinegar or lemon or whatever? Like does it need to be sweeter? Does it need to be like more bitter? And I think that you know, like especially like that particular flavor profile. You know, that was something that, like, our ancestors deliberately sought out, you know, the bitterness, because it's also an indication of it being medicine. Yeah. Um, but, like, our palaces, like, completely are not trained to enjoy bitterness anymore, with the exception of, like, probably coffee. Um, yeah. But, so, I think not being afraid to both try it in a traditional way without all that stuff in it is definitely good, but, you know, not beating yourself up is... If mean like if it means to be able to eat traditionally, that you start incorporating other things to make it more accessible to your palate, I wouldn't feel ashamed about it at all, <laughs> and just recognizing that that for better or for worse is where we're at as a people, and that it's better for you to be eating those traditional foods, even if it doesn't necessarily taste exactly like how your ancestors would have been eating it or liked it. Yeah. Just to like you know just keep eating it.
0: Yeah. What are you working towards as a creator? Um, and I really feel that you are an artist in all forms. What are you working towards? Like, what is like your uh, message? I know for me, um, when I paint or when I'm carving something nowadays, I can really see my subconscious coming through when I hit a rhythm, uh, and I'm not even really thinking about it. I'm just kind of going uh, with uh, uh, the muscle memory and instincts of the project that I'm working on. Um, but you know, what are what are some of the, your thoughts? What are you what are you trying to say in your work?
1: Being afraid to push past the narratives that we're told, and what uh, we're told to we accept to be traditional, and to uh, to look both backwards and forwards to figure out how can we both honor the past but move forward as a people uh, creatively in the future. Yeah. So that these kinds of things keep going on, um, and I think that means like not being. Um, afraid that someone might say that, like, you know, like, that's not our traditional beadwork, um, or, you know, like, what is that thing on your face, <laughs> or are yeah. there tattoos on your face, or, you know, like, why are you, uh, you know, why are you adding this into your food? Um, I think that, uh, especially with the food, you know, um, because there is such a, even still, um. a detachment, I guess, from our traditional foods, from the breath of them, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, and also specifically from healthy foods. Um, I think that, you know, like, unfortunately, like, we have to get used to eating fruits and vegetables and being comfortable with that probably before we really dive in deep to traditional foods, and I think that's okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think we got to start the starting point somewhere, but, you know, just working towards having people be more comfortable with eating traditional foods and, like, being okay also with... The fact that it really makes you slow down, um, that convenience doesn't always mean, um, isn't always a good thing, you know? Yeah. Whether that's beadwork um, or, you know, like some kind of art or being able to slow down and be okay with that, spending that time with your relatives and your community and your friends to engage in those things, um, I think, um, that's kind of where I'm going towards and just encouraging that in other people.
0: Definitely. Um, is there something that you want to discuss a project that you're working on presently or, um, uh, maybe a book or, uh, uh, any projects that you got going on that you would want to share with the audience tonight?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I kind of spoke on it a little bit before. Uh, I think that, uh, I guess i will speak a little bit more on it. Like I said, I'm part of the I collective, which you can look that up on Facebook. If you'd like, it's I like the letter I dash collective. Um, you should be able to find it. And, uh, the current project I'm working on right now is just having that, uh, that community dinner here at up for the people to be able to, you know, be accountable and give back. Yeah. And then the one in Seattle, um, so I know, I recognize that unfortunately kind of, of the way it is that the prices of being able to access at the pop-up the traditional food is kind of, um, a lot of money.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but, uh, you know, I think that uh, if you can uh, come on out, then I'd definitely, like, encourage you to. Um, and I'm hoping, like, maybe sometime in the future, I keep saying this, um, I really admire the work of of uh, of Bradley James Dry and also uh, Taylor Barton, who are both Cherokee and are both, uh, I know Bradley said so he's more comfortable with the term chef. I mean, sorry, cook than chef. Um, but they've also done tremendous work in... Um, you know, like, really engaging in the traditional Cherokee cuisine and bringing that, you know, like, into a, um, a pop-up setting since, you know, I can't always uh, afford to have restaurants, but we can definitely create spaces where people can come on out and have those foods in restaurants or, um, you know, like different spaces. So yeah. um, I would love to be able to work with them uh, and have a pop-up and also uh, my Akana... Uh, my friend David Rico, who's also Choctaw, who is uh, working hard on the line in DC, mm-hmm. but also there are traditional foods with Choctaws. Um, so hopefully, sometime in the future, I can get the funding for that. Uh, it would be great to be able to do that down in Oklahoma. Yeah. But I mean, now like out here on the west coast. Indeed. So Those are kind of things I'm working towards.
0: Very cool.
2: Well.
0: What do you hope for the future in your field what do you what do you hope to see in the next 20 years as a result of the things that you're working towards or um, are you trying to share with your community you know what are what are some of those hopes and dreams
1: my hopes would be that uh, would be that you know that we start seeing more indigenous uh, people in the kitchen that are committed and willing to Dive deep into their cultural cuisines. Because um, there's, like you were saying earlier, there's like really not that many restaurants out there. There's like the Fous Chef uh, by uh, Sean Sherman. Yes. And then the Cotter, the Sage, And then uh, I think like Salmon and Bonnock up in uh, Vancouver. Okay. DC. Uh, there's a couple other ones here and there, but the rest of them are like, if there's any like native restaurants. Uh, food trucks or anything like that out there. It's usually fry bread. So I would love to see um, maybe less fry bread trucks <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: um, and more more diving deep into people's different cuisines because, I mean, there's like, what, like 566 recognized tribes, and that's not counting all the ones that are, uh, you know, unrecognized or state recognized or landless. And
2: yeah.
1: So you think of a breadth of different cuisines here, In the United States and Canada, um, it's just tremendous. And I would love to be able to go and access, uh, you know, like, those different foods, hear the stories regarding them, like, how these foods have affected uh, different communities and tribes throughout history. I would really love to see that. And then also, like, I feel like being able to see the food presented um, in that kind of way, like, I think that that's just another area that gives us more pride. And so, yeah, just... A lot more native chefs
0: and cooks out there, or, you know. Whatever the word is in your tribal language, you know. Like I like to go by Hoponi. Hoponi. that's cool. You need to have but, that on your business card. Yeah. <laughs> well, very cool. Thank you, Brett, uh, for you know coming on this evening. Is there a way that folks can get in contact with you, or do you have a page that they can see your work, or maybe even uh, um, get in contact with you to? Uh, to book something or uh, anything like that, uh, what are some ways that, uh, people can reach out?
1: Yeah, on a, a personal way to find me, like, there's always my Facebook, um, which is just like, you know, facebook.com slash, uh, writ.read. There's also my Instagram, which is, uh, Nita Hoyo, uh, Choctaw word, uh, N-I-T-A-O-H-O-Y-O, um, and then there's also the iCollective page. I would say that's definitely another great way to get in contact with me or any of the folks that are doing the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, and if you have to be Choctaw in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you can also come and join our group of folks up here and by finding us on Facebook at uh, Pacific Northwest Choctaw or uh, our email uh, dot gmail.com
2: well,
0: that's a
1: couple different ways to to find me.
0: That is awesome. Well, thank you, Britt. It's been wonderful talking to you.
2: Yeah, thank you. Cool.
0: Thank you, Britt, for coming in tonight. It was really good to speak with you. Your work and what you're doing is so inspiring, and I look forward to speaking to you again. To everyone that's tuning in, thank you. To piece of the show.